Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Guru Vaishnavamstra Sri Rupam Sagratatam Sahagaravanatan Vitam Tam Sadivam Sadvaitam Savadutam Parijana Saitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakhan Vitamstra Umagyana Timirandasya Vyanagana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Yenatasmai Sri Ravenamaha Siddhantut Palasara Nitikar Rasikam Hamsam Vilasadmakam Audarya Kisudama Sivakadanam Vishrama Bhakti Pradam Yachna Yuktivichakshanam Dwagabido Vaishishta Shaktiya Sada Mande Ham Tripurari Namakayatim Sri Bhakti Vedantinam Panchakalpatrubhyascha Kripasindubhyayevacha Patitanam Bhavanibhyo Vaishnavibhyo Namo Namaha Namo Mahavadanyaya Krishna Prima Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namanega Urtishe Namaha He Krishna Kurunasindho Dinamandho Jagatpati Gupesha Gupika Kantaradha Kantanamustuti Tattakanchana Gaurangi Radhe Vrindavanishwari Vrishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Haripri Jai Shri Krishna Jaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Advaita Gadadhara Shivasari Shigaura Bhaktavarinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama Hare Rama Eva Kevalam Kalaonasti Eva Nasti Eva Nasti Eva Vati Ranyata Hare Bol everyone Hare Bol again Namarasana Sekirati Shamananda Kaliyagopavana Prabhu Thank you again for translating Yavat Bihari Devi, Karen, Greg, Govinda Mohini, Pavana, Gaurnarayana, Radhamadava. Nice to, to have you all here again. We reached the end of this series. This is the last part of the series on uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra for devotees, an introduction. In the three first parts, I have uh, given the background of this book and why I think it's useful for, for Vaishnava devotees to know something about this book. And then I've been going through the book from the beginning. And so far, uh, we've gotten to more or less the end of the, the second chapter, beginning of the third chapter, the, the eightfold path of yoga this uh, very idea of having a, a path with eight parts like this is of course something that Patanjali borrows from Buddhism. It's uh, evident that Patanjali uh, was a person who um, knew quite a bit about Buddhism. He had probably studied Buddhism. If you know something about Buddhism, we're speaking here about Mahayana, early Mahayana Buddhism. So it's Indian Buddhism, uh, particularly the, the branches or the schools that he had been influenced by was the Abhidharma school or Abhidhamma school. And then what is called Yogachara Buddhism. And I'll get back to this Yogachara a little bit later today. So Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, four chapters. First two 
you've heard about, and I mentioned a little bit about the last parts of, of the Eightfold Path that are uh, explained in the beginning of the third chapter. But the main topic of the third chapter of the Yoga Sutra is what Patanjali calls vibhuti, or jnana, or siddhi. The idea here is that uh, once you've learned to calm the mind, once you've learned to calm the mind and focus the mind, then by focusing the mind on particular objects, uh, you can learn things. The idea is that uh, as human beings, our uh, understanding of the world, our understanding of our uh, environment is flawed. Uh, because uh, we don't see things as they are. Not just because we have bad eyes and need, need glasses or something like that, but because uh, our mind gets in the way. Like if I, uh, I look at, uh, let's say, Namrasana. She is uh, my god sister from Poland. And uh, we've met her many times in the Polish retreats. And she's a really nice devotee. Like every devotee is nice, but just because I know Namrasana uh, better than I know, for example, Jabat Bihari, when I see Namrasana, immediately I feel happy. Oh, Namrasana. I wonder what she's doing. So I don't see Namrasana and Yavat Bihari in the same way. Because about Yavat Bihari, I don't know almost anything. About Namrasana, I know something. So I'm seeing rasana through the filter of my mind. I'm seeing everything through the filter of my mind. So I don't see whatever I'm seeing clearly. Let's say I'm looking at uh, uh, a bowl of uh, fried eggplant. I would see it as yummy. Wow, that's the best thing. Deep fried eggplant. Uh, if you'd show the same bowl to our Padmanam Maharaj, he would think, yuck. He doesn't like that. So none of us actually sees the eggplant. One person sees, ooh, I'm going to enjoy that. That's for my enjoyment. The other person sees, Oh, that's disgusting. Eggplant isn't yucky. Eggplant isn't yummy. Eggplant is eggplant. But our interpretation gets in the way of seeing what it actually is. But Pantanjali thinks that we can learn this kind of yogic perception where we see things uh, in a pure way. And to do this, we need first to get rid of our own preconceived opinions. But we also need to get rid of the name. Because most names, and we spoke a little bit about this earlier, most names are conventional. So uh, eggplant, obershin, uh, eggplanta, whatever you call it. That's a name 
that is a conventional name for this particular vegetable. So that's also a limiting thing. We think that this is aubergine, this is eggplant, and that thing which is uh, white looks, has the same form more or less, but we think it's something else. So if we can learn to perceive something as it is, without uh, interposing our preconceived opinions or our preconceived uh, vocabulary, then we can see that thing as it is. And when we do that, when we focus the mind on that on a particular object, so much so that that object completely fills our mind and we're not aware of even ourselves thinking about it, then amazing things are going to start to happen. That's what Patanjali is saying. His idea is that by approaching an object like this, in a way we become that object. If we meditate on an aubergine like this, we're not going to turn into an aubergine. But uh, internally, for maybe even one second or one hundredth of a second, we will identify with that aubergine. Now, meditating on aubergines is not something that Patanjali recommends or, or forbids either, or he doesn't deal with vegetables. But uh, it's an important point that it makes a difference what you meditate on. Sometimes in today's kind of new age world, you hear people say that there's no difference if you meditate on a mantra or a, a picture or a swan or your beloved. The whole point is just to calm and still the mind. Patanjali doesn't agree. Because the, his idea is that whatever you focus the mind on, for a while you'll become that object. And that object will kind of... Uh, leave some traces in you. So if you meditate on uh, a traumatic memory from your childhood, you really sit down and relive all the, the anxiety or pain or whatever, that's going to give you a completely different mindset than if you sit down and meditate on, for example, Krishna's name. It's not the same. The object of meditation, uh, different objects have different results. So Patanjali thinks that if we focus on particular objects, we can learn things from them. This is a kind of inner way of getting knowledge, a kind of, a, maybe we could call it empathetic knowing, to use a, a more Western term. This is something that Western esotericism has always also dealt with. If you read persons like Paracelsus or others, they also have this idea that you can learn to know a plant, for example, by cutting up the plant, by putting it under a, a, a magnifying glass or a, or a microscope, or then you can understand the plant by trying to 
imagine the plant, to try to uh, feel this kind of inner connection with the plant. And Patanjali agrees with this. Most of these different meditative practices that he speaks about in the third chapter, their idea is this, that you learn from the object. Sometimes this is obvious, sometimes not so obvious. For example, Patanjali says that if you meditate in this way, this very focused, concentrated way on the sun, you'll get knowledge of the, uh, the layout of the universe. How does this happen? How do you learn what the universe looks like by meditating on the sun? doesn't seem to make any sense, but it does make sense if we think about this from Patanjali's perspective and from his idea of identification. Because what does the sun do? Well, the sun, in a sense, it sees. It's like the, the cosmic eye of the Lord together with the moon. How does the sun see? Through its rays. And where do the sun rays go? Well, they go obviously all around the universe. So just like the sun sees the whole universe, if you, through meditation, identify yourself with the sun, you will also see the universe in the same way. In other cases, Patanjali thinks that if you meditate on a particular object, you can also take over some of the qualities of the object. For example, if you meditate on a mind free from passion, you also become passionless. Or if you meditate on the strength of some particular being, like uh, Garuda's strength, for example, or the strength of an elephant, you will become strong like an elephant or strong like Garuda. Now, when we get to this point, and anybody who reads the Yoga Sutra, when they get to this point, they're going to start to ask, wait a minute, this sounds kind of cool. This sounds interesting. You can get the strength of Garuda or you can get uh, the ability to levitate, for example, float up into the air, or you can get the, the ability to read somebody else's mind. Like I know exactly what you're thinking right now, Karen, stop it. I don't. But Patanjali uh, uh, speaks about these kind of things. You can learn all of these kind of things by focusing the mind on different things. You focus the mind on the workings of the mind, on your own mind, then you can also learn the workings of somebody else's mind. But of course, the question we're bound to ask ourselves is, is this actually true? And if it's true, why don't we see advanced yogis doing all these things? Like when was the last time your yoga teacher levitated? Or when was the last time you saw a yogi lift a school bus with one hand or something like that? So yogis have tried to understand from ancient times already, have tried to understand and try to interpret Patanjali's uh, sutras here in the third uh, chapter in different ways. 
for example, uh, I was once giving a, a talk on these topics at one yoga school here in Finland. And uh, I was speaking about these powers. And then one lady in the audience, a very kind of matter of fact, no nonsense Finnish middle-aged lady, she put up her hand and said, I actually have experience of this. I was uh, having a yoga class. It was actually in the same place, maybe two years back. And um, in the middle of the yoga class, one lady started levitating. And, uh, and it was very scary because the, 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 the window was a little bit open and she was scared that she would be sucked out uh, in the sky. And she was super scared. And this lady was telling me this and I was sitting there and thinking, what to think about this? And I was imagining, of course, the lady going out the window and the teacher holding her legs and come down. And, uh, and this lady continued and she said, it was very scary and it took her several days before she felt that she was back on, on the ground again. And then I understood, ah, okay, yeah, I understand it now. She had uh, the feeling of losing her touch with the ground. She felt like she was levitating, that she, was, she wasn't grounded anymore. And that had been a scary feeling for her, but it was a subjective experience. It wasn't that she was actually halfway out the window, but it was a feeling she had. So in the same way, some people think that these abilities that Patanjali is speaking about here in the third chapter, the ability to fly or the ability to, to uh, uh, read somebody's mind or being strong like Garuda. These are all subjective experiences. So you get the feeling of these things. That's one interpretation. I don't think it's a very strong interpretation though. This is something we should uh, uh, be aware of that you can always interpret everything in, in any way, but it doesn't mean that every interpretation is as strong or as likely to be true. So the reason why I don't think this interpretation of these uh, yogic powers as simply uh, subjective experiences is, is very strong is that that's not how they are described in the texts themselves. We have plenty of other texts, Mahabharata and other texts, full of descriptions of yogis with these kind of powers that they don't only experience themselves, but that other experience as well. Yogis doing uh, wonderful and strange things. And those kind of stories, of course, we have in the kind of folklore around yoga uh, all the way till today. At the same time, there's always been a kind of counter narrative or a, a, an alternative to these stories where the emphasis is that don't go for these kind of powers because they're going to distract you. I know for a fact that if I had the ability to levitate, for example, I wouldn't be doing this course here on Zoom for you for free. I would be be having workshops on how to levitate and they would cost lots and lots of money. And uh, 
uh, only if you you were a very pretty girl, then you could maybe levitate in my lap or something like that. I'm sure that if I had these kind of powers, I would become completely puffed up and 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 self-centered person much more than I am already. So uh, there's also this kind of narrative about these powers that they can be dangerous. They can, they can lead the yogi astray. They can lead the yogi in the wrong direction. And we heard here, of course, these kind of stories. Like there's one story that we hear quite often in the Gaudiya tradition of uh, two boys who decide when they are small to become yogis. One becomes uh, a bhakta and the other one becomes uh, uh, what Prabhupada calls a mystic yogi. So he goes off and he does tapasya, he does austerities, uh, he practices different kinds of meditations and so on. The other one, he gets married, he has a family, uh, he does his yoga, but uh, he focuses on bhakti. So then they meet again after 20 years. One is a householder with five kids uh, and so on. The other one is this skinny yogi with dreadlocks and body is all covered with ashes. and His eyes are completely red. So they meet and and the householder is, wow, my friend, after so many years we met. So I see that you really went for, for yoga. So what have, you, what have you learned? Look. They go down to the river. And the mystic yogi, he walks on the water to the other side. And then when he's on the other side, he's standing there like, waiting for the other one to become really enthusiastic and start bowing down to him. And the householder, he gives the boatman one rupee and he goes over to the other side and he says, you just spent 20 years of your life to learn that. I paid one rupee to go over with the boat. So this kind of narrative is also there about the powers. Not only uh, can they be dangerous, they're also ultimately not so important for the spiritual path. Nevertheless, Patanjali spends almost a whole chapter describing these powers. Uh, so I don't think that for him, the powers are something unnecessary or something dangerous. Rather, for him, for Patanjali, attaining these different levels of knowledge, these different powers, these different abilities, they represent progressing on the path of yoga, one step to another. And these steps do not deal only with the human condition of life. Some of these powers are beyond human capabilities. Patanjali lives in the same kind of universe, of course, as, as all the pre-modern uh, Indian authors, a universe where humanity is somewhere around the middle, but definitely is not the crown of creation. There are lots of different beings in this world, some of which we have experience of as humans, 
some which are above our understanding and our experience. Devatas, Kinnaras, Kimpurushas, Yakshas, Gandharvas, Apsaras, and so on. All of these beings that we read about in the books, but that we don't really know very much about. Just like uh, a mosquito knows very little about a human, for example. So uh, the part of yoga in Patanjali's uh, worldview is a part that uh, takes many lifetimes to traverse. Like in the Gita, Krishna says, Bahunam Janmanamante. After many lifetimes, one uh, who has knowledge can uh, come to me. But even among these people, only very few know me in truth. So there's this idea in Patanjali's yoga that the part of yoga, the part of spiritual life is a difficult one. This is not unique to Patanjali, of course. We hear the same thing in the Upanishads. Uh, spiritual path is sharp as a razor's edge. So this kind of uh, spiritual elitism is there in Patanjali as well. And it's, of course, very different from the bhakti path, which is meant for everybody. Where there are dangers as well, but not really in the same way. Like Krishna says, you can, you can run with your eyes closed on this path. Don't do that in ordinary life. But on the bhakti path, in a sense, you can run with your eyes closed. As long as you listen to Krishna's flute song, you're going to run in the right direction, something like that. So Patanjali's third chapter, it deals with uh, these different powers, these different levels of advancement. And we get back again to the same question. There's many people who do yoga so why don't they get these powers? One answer is that they do. They're just keeping them secret. Uh, because otherwise uh, people will just focus on them. Possible. Another alternative may be that perhaps yogis in today's world are not that super advanced. They can be very good at asanas. They can be super good at pranayama. But maybe they are not that good at meditation. And I think this is a, a thing that, uh, that's worth thinking about a little bit. Because we live in a society where the idea is that humanity is progressing all the time. Humanity is progressing. We're getting better as uh, a society. And we are better than our parents were. They, they were better than their parents. Everything is just getting better all the time. We're so much smarter. We know so much better. We're so much more ethical and so on. But is it really like that? We definitely have more knowledge than our forefathers did. I mean, just within a, a mobile phone, there's more information than in in any library on earth. So, so uh, we do have lots of information, 
but how much knowledge do we actually have? How much wisdom do we actually have? And how much does all of this knowledge that we have perhaps hinder us from, for example, meditation? When our life is so full of all kinds of Facebooks and Instagrams and, and TikToks and whatnot, maybe that's just making us more kind of bahushaka, like Krishna says in the Gita, more many-branched, hindering us from focusing on whatever spiritual path we're on. So I think it's good to see, on our, see ourselves with a bit more humility than we sometimes do. Maybe it really is Kali Yuga. Maybe it really is Kali Yuga. Maybe humanity is uh, not prog progressing, but devolving. Maybe people had yogic powers in the past, but today, because we become lazy, because we become so bound, so limited by technology, maybe we don't have those uh, abilities anymore. So there are a few different ways in which to, to think about uh, these kind of mystic powers, vibhutis or siddhis. They have many different names. These kind of powers are mentioned, of course, in other texts as well. In the Srimad Bhagavatam, they are also mentioned and in, in other texts also. So they are not unique to Patanjali, but, but he spends a lot of time and he tries to systematize them and understand them from the worldview of Sankhya, which is his general worldview. Then, when we turn from the third chapter to the fourth, we notice first that the fourth chapter is quite a bit shorter than the other chapters. The first, second, and third chapters all have about 50 sutras each. The third chapter about, about 30, so it's a little bit shorter. And it's also a little bit more like an appendix. The first chapter is its own whole. It's a, a complete kind of exposition in itself. Then it starts again in the second chapter and the second and third chapter, they, they belong together very strongly, but they also form kind of a complete whole. The fourth chapter is kind of an extra chapter some scholars in the last century thought that the third, fourth chapter was a, a later edition, but modern scholarship rejects that idea. They've all always been together, the four chapters. Nevertheless, the fourth chapter is a little bit like an addition in the sense that it, it goes back to some topics that have been, been covered in brief and gives more detail about them. Patanjali, for example, in the very first sutra in the fourth chapter, he goes back to the topic of these, uh, <coughs> excuse me, mystical powers. And he says that you can get them in four different ways. Janmau shadi mantra tapa samadija siddhaya. Janmau shadi mantra tapa. Five, five different ways. Of course, five. Five is Patanjali's favorite number. Janma. That's the first. You can have these kind of mystical powers by birth. Some people have. I don't. But uh, other people have mystical powers by birth. The power of 
telekinesis or whatever. Janmaushadhi. The other is aushadha or herbs. What does that mean? Uh, Vyasa, the first commentator that uh, modern scholarship thinks is the same as Patanjali. He says that these kind of herbs from which you can get mystical powers and mystical knowledge are available in the cities of the demons. That doesn't help us very much. And then another commentator says that these kind of cities are, are at the bottom of the sea and up, high up in the mountains. So if you want to get these kind of mystical powers, then you can go and search for the cities of the demons. Or then you can not care about it. So Janmaushadi mantra. That's the third mantra. You can get mystical powers through mantras as well. And then tapa through austerities. This is how it usually happens in the Srimad Bhagavatam. Somebody gets a mystical power through, through tapas. Hiranyakashipu, for example. And then samadhi through deep meditation. So he's kind of adding some details here. And he goes on doing that throughout the fourth chapter, with one exception, and that is that in the fourth chapter, Patanjali also engage, engages in philosophical uh, disputation. This is typical for sutra books. Sutra texts almost always have some kind of a philosophical opponent that they engage with. In Sanskrit, this is called the Purvapaksha. Purvapaksha means the opposite wing, literally. So it means uh, the, the opponent. So sutra texts, they usually uh, engage with some philosophical opponent uh, to, through this uh, philosophical discussion, show that their own philosophy is, is the best, but also to uh, uh, sharpen the, the, their own arguments by, by making them come in contact with others. It's really easy to have the best philosophy in the world if you don't have anybody to speak with. You can think up all kinds of arguments and they can all sound really good and convincing until you actually try to convince somebody else. It can be super difficult. Like uh, think of reincarnation, for example, such a basic thing. Everybody believes in reincarnation. Of course, hardly anybody believes in reincarnation when you go out there in the world. And you can try to convince somebody about reincarnation. It doesn't necessarily help that you're super convinced yourself. It might still be super difficult to get somebody else convinced about it. But even if you don't manage to convince that other person, maybe you can come up with some good arguments that will strengthen your own faith. So potentially, like other sutra authors, he does this. In the Brahma Sutra, Vyasadeva, he engages primarily with Samkhya philosophy in this way. That he, he, he explains Vedanta by arguing with Samkhya philosophy and showing that this kind of dualism of Samkhya doesn't really uh, hold up to logical or scriptural scrutiny. 
And Patanjali does the same in the fourth chapter, but not with Samkhya, but with Buddhism. Now, I mentioned earlier that Patanjali was uh, influenced by Buddhism. And that's true. He learned many things from Buddhist texts. He takes over Buddhist uh, practices, Buddhist ideas, Buddhist language. Throughout the Yoga Sutra, there's a lot of Buddhist language going on. He uses many terms uh, Buddhists have come up with. But he does it in his own way, and he doesn't agree with everything that the Buddhists teach. And there's particularly two things that he takes exception to, and they're connected. One of them is that the world is false. Uh, in this uh, uh, Yogacara Buddhist school that Patanjali particularly deals with, Buddhism also by Patanjali's time had been split up into several different uh, competing philosophical schools. One of them was called Yogacara. Yogacara means uh, the practice of yoga. So they also did some kind of yoga in that school. But that school is also known as the, the uh, Chittamatra school. Chittamatra means mind only school. It's also called Vijnanavada or, or consciousness school. And both of these names, they refer to the fact that within this Buddhist school, there's the idea that everything uh, that exists, exists, exists in the mind. The world around us doesn't exist on its, on its own. It exists only through our minds. In the most kind of extreme form, it, this leads to a form of, of what you call in philosophical language solipsism, the idea that the only thing that exists is I. It looks like here on the screen there's an Amrasana and Kaliuga Pavana and Greg and Govinda Mohini and so on. But from this perspective, this is just something that my mind has made up of, made up it's like a dream. You can dream about all kinds of people doing all kinds of things, but it's just your dream. Now, this sounds like a crazy idea, but philosophically, it's very difficult to disprove this. It's almost impossible. This kind of idea that everything that exists, exists only in the mind, is called idealism. And uh, there are some things in modern physics that uh, even seem to, to, to prove some sort of idealism. For example, there's a very famous uh, quantum physics experiment where uh, it really appears that uh, the observer can influence uh, movement of these uh, quantum particles just by observing them. So there are many, not only spiritualists, but also uh, physicalists or naturalists who think that the world somehow is dependent on our mind. Pantanjali doesn't completely disagree. Like I said before, he thinks that we impose our mind on the world. We don't see the world as it is because we, we see it through the filter of our mind. 
but he does very powerfully argue for the independence of the world, that the world may be colored by your mind, but that doesn't mean that the world doesn't exist. He gives a classical example of a young woman. Uh, a young woman uh, who is seen by her little child or who is seen by a lusty man or who is seen by her proud husband or who is seen by a dog. So all of these beings, the baby, the husband, the lusty man, the dog, maybe uh, another woman, they all see this one woman in different ways because of their own particular minds, their own relationships to her and so on. So they all see her in different ways. But does that mean that that woman doesn't exist? Patanjali would say no. It just means that their conception of her is limited and uh, distorted. Or another example he gives is uh, right now, when I'm sitting in this room here, I can just see this inside of the wall here. But does that mean that there's no outside wall? How can you have inside without outside? Just because I'm not aware of the outside wall, does it mean that it doesn't exist? Or another uh, classical example that you hear in, in kind of basic philosophy class in the West as well. If a, if a tree falls in the, in the forest, does it make a sound if there's nobody to hear the sound? Patanjali would say, of course it does. You are not the center of the universe. Things happen even without you. But again, it's difficult to prove this philosophically. You can, you can argue that it's, it's per perhaps a, a more kind of easy explanation, but still it's difficult to, to prove. Like for example, uh, George Bernard Russell, he gives this example that imagine that you have a cat in your room. You're sitting in your room working on the computer and, uh, and the cat is there. And the cat is, uh, it's, a, it's a little cat, a kitten. It runs around on the floor. It scratches your leg. It climbs in the, in the drapes, the window. Uh, and then you go out from the room just while the cat is, is still climbing there. You go out from the room, you have a cup of, of herbal tea, and then you come back into the room. It's not likely that the cat will still be kind of exactly in the same place where it was when you left it. It was climbing there in the drape, and when you get back, it's there, and then it continues again. That's not going to happen. It's more likely that even if you were not there observing anything, it was doing all kinds of things there in the room. Maybe it uh, slept for a little while, it uh, peed on the floor, it uh, destroyed uh, a shoe of yours or whatever. 
And of course, you could argue that, yeah, yeah, but that's also something you made up in your dream. Nevertheless, it's a more kind of easy explanation to think that the cat actually does exist even outside of your mind, outside of when you are conscious of the cat. So this is one issue that Patanjali deals with. Does the world exist? And it's an important point for Patanjali. It's not just because he wants to be a philosopher and, and, and think about philosophical questions. It's an important point because uh, uh, it connects with the other question that he's dealing with in this uh, dialogue with the Buddhists. And that is whether I actually exist and you, whether there is some kind of eternal being that exists. Again, Buddhists and Patanjali agree that the world is, is uh, uh, temporary. We would also agree as, as Vedantists, Gaudiya Vedantists. The world is temporary and it's made up. It looks like things in this world are eternal, but that's just because of our limited experience. Everything is made up of moments like this. Like uh, uh, I'm sitting here giving this lecture. You'll see me again next time I give a lecture, but it will not, not be the same Brigupada as today. Might look the same, but the Brigupada of today is different from the Brigu of yesterday. The Brigu of right now is different from the Brigu of five minutes ago. So many things have happened. So many cells, skin cells have died. So many new thoughts have come up. So many movements of the body looks like the same guy, but actually lots of things have changed. Vedantists, Buddhists, Patanjali would all agree on this. Everything goes through these changes, rapid changes. They're just so rapid, so we don't notice them. But the point of contention is, is there behind all of these movements, behind all, the, all of these changes, is there something that is permanent, that is abiding, that doesn't change? Buddhists would say, no, there's no such thing. That is exactly why we are in trouble, because we make up these kind of false identities and we cling to them without realizing that everything is temporary. Patanjali would say, yes, we cling to temporary things, thinking that they are eternal. But that is because behind all of these temporary things, there actually is something eternal. What Patanjali calls the Purusha or the Drashtra, the seer, or what we Vedantists call the Atma. Uh, and Patanjali argues for this eternal self in several different ways. It's important for, her, for him, of course, because uh, without some kind of uh, eternal self, then there's no point in the whole yogic path. If there's nothing, then you can just as well just let go of everything 
there's nothing permanent, nothing ultimately true. Then life really loses all of its meaning. One of my favorite arguments is that uh, we speak about uh, equality, for example. But unless we accept that there is some kind of eternal self, whether we want to call it Atma or Purusha or whatever, all of this talk of equality is just talk. Like in which way is Shamananda and I equal? From a material point of view, in no way. He's younger than me. He's more handsome. He, uh, he is different from me in so many different ways. I think I'm a little bit richer. But that's about the only thing where I'm kind of having more points than him. So we're not equal. We're not getting the same salary. We're not paying the same amount of taxes. Uh, we're not the same. And the same, of course, applies to everybody. We may say that we are equal. We have the same opportunities. We have the same duties, but we don't. Shamananda can go away to Madhuban if he just manages to convince Sakirati. Then they can go there. There's nobody else who, will, who needs to kind of, who he needs to convince. Uh, for me, it wouldn't be as, as easy. I need to convince a few more people. So we don't have exactly the same kind of opportunities. We don't even have the same kind of duties. Shamananda has his own duties. I have my duties. They're different. So we're not equal. If we think about these kind of things only. For example, if uh, let's imagine that we're all here in the same room and then uh, a slave, uh, a slaver, a person who sells and buys slaves comes in with a, with a machine gun and says, I'm taking you all now as slaves and I'm going to sell you. And then he takes us all to a slave market in Mauritania or wherever they have slaves. The sad fact is that they would pay differently for, for us. Some people would get a bigger price and some would get a lower price. They would look at me and say, oh, that guy is all completely white hair and glasses and he looks really weak. We won't be able to have any much use of him. But uh, Kali Yuga Pavana Prabhu, there you have somebody who could do good work. So we'll pay nicely for him. And it's sad for those of us who will be at the bottom of the pile, but it's a reality. We're not equal. Our bodies are not equal. Our minds are not equal. But if we believe that there is something more to us than those things, then we can actually speak about equality on the platform of the self, the true self. There is equality, the real equality, not just kind of words. So uh, for Patanjali, it's an important point that there is something more to this world than just uh, uh, changes and, and uh, moments 
that there's something that is abiding. One example, one argument that he gives is memories. If you think that uh, there's no connection between Brigu now and Brigu five minutes ago, how come you two share the same minutes? How come you two share the same memories? That's one argument that he gives. Another argument has to do with karma. If you think that uh, Brigu of today is completely different than Brigu of yesterday, how come both of you have bad eyes? Or how come if uh, Brigu of today kills a guy and goes to prison, how come Brigu of tomorrow can't say that? Well, that wasn't me, that was Brigu of yesterday who did it. So karma and memory, they seem to speak against this idea of life being completely just momentary and made up of these momentary kind of flashes. So he argues in these ways with uh, Buddhist philosophers. And this is typical for sutra texts. As I said, it happens also in the Brahma Sutra and other sutras. And then at the end, after having engaged in this kind of polemics, he goes back to the yoga path. He describes a little bit more about the last stages of it. And then he defines the ultimate goal for him, which is kaivalya or or uh, liberation, where prakriti and purusha, consciousness and matter, separate. From the point of view of, of prakriti, that's an amazing thing. The culmination of lifetimes of practice. But from the point of view of purusha, actually nothing has happened. Purusha, purusha has always been uh, free, always been full of knowledge, full of, of uh, understanding, but this has just been covered over. So you see that this idea of everything being within that, for example, is a topic of discussion now in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. This is something that you can find in, in some other philosophical schools. So in this way, I've tried to give kind of an overview of the, the Yoga Sutra focusing on, on things that uh, I personally find interesting because I'm a self-centered guy, uh, but also on things that I think can offer bridges of understanding for people uh, speaking with uh, persons who have an interest in yoga philosophy and wanting to, to introduce Krishna consciousness to them. I've also focused on things that I thought are interesting to contrast our Gaudiya Vaishnava Vedanta philosophy with. And finally, I've also uh, focused on some parts that I think are, are useful for our own uh, practice. Not so much the last thing, this last lecture, but in the other lectures, I've, I've spoken a little bit more about those things. Uh, again, I want to, to thank uh, the organizers Maharaj, and uh, very much I want to thank Kali Pavana Prabhu for translating. And of course, all of you for attending. This would have been very boring for me if I would have been alone here. So I'm very thankful to you that you all turned up for this, these lectures. Are there any questions before we, we end?
Yes, Rasana. Interpretation. Do you hear me? Yes. So after the seminar, it's quite amazing uh, that we can see how this world uh, looks like, that it's like some kind of movie or dream or illusion. And still uh, we treat our life so seriously. So Gupata tell us when this time will come <laughs> when in our minds click something <laughs> then we change <laughs> our attitude <laughs> that we can see some some bad things uh, yeah from a distance and not treat them so seriously mm. yeah, that's a very good question yeah i don't know I'm not there myself, so 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 I don't know. I also just today I was so mental about something, just thinking about it again and again and again. Then at some point I was able to kind of let it go, a little bit at least. But I'm definitely uh, not free from these things myself, so I I can't I can't say when it will happen. I'm hoping it will happen to me maybe in the next within the next eight or 10 lifetimes or something like that. But maybe if we take a bit more positive perspective, uh, I mean, I'm not very advanced at all. Uh, if you would ask Sargrahi, you would know exactly how advanced I am. But, uh, uh, Still, I think that some advancement has happened since I began the Bhakti path. And whether that is just because I've grown up and it's 25 or 30 years have passed in my life, or whether it is because of the sadhana, uh, of course, I don't know exactly, but I like to think that the sadhana at, at least has helped a little bit. And I, I do try to think like this, that... that uh, to, to kind of to look at the mind that now the mind is doing like this. Interesting. And this is a point Patanjali is also making that we are not the mind because we can look at the mind. We can recognize sometimes that, wow, the mind is doing this. So that, that proves that we are not the mind. We're something else. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, what about the chanting? Because the chanting is some kind of meditation, and uh, you talk a lot about the results, yes. And of course, our attitude should be that we chant for pleasure of Krishna and forget about desire, yes. But sometimes we need uh, to see that we are doing some progress, yes. So, can you tell a few? Uh, a few things about how can we how can we see that we are doing some kind of progress or that our chanting is is going in in good direction yes because when you are chanting nicely some results probably will come yes 
So can we talk, can you tell some words about this? I, this is a very good question. Thank you for this because uh, if we focus too much on the results, we easily become too self-centered. And, and uh, that's not good on the bhakti path to think that what will I get out of this? But as you say, if there's no results, then that can also be discouraging. I've been doing this now for so many years and nothing has happened. Uh, of course, we always hear that uh, the, the, the ultimate kind of standard of to see whether we are, are advancing in Krishna consciousness is to see which is bigger. Do we have more attraction to Krishna or more attraction to Maya? So this is really how we judge. Am I becoming more interested in Krishna consciousness? Am I becoming more interested in hearing and chanting? Or am I becoming more interested in my own career or my own ego or in sex or whatever thing it is that is important for us? So this really is the, the kind of uh, most important way to judge our advancement. But it's difficult many times to see this clearly ourselves. Like I know many devotees who, to me, are super advanced. Like uh, they look forward to a whole day of cooking for Krishna. I just spoke with one devotee in Poland who told me that she's looking forward to, on Monday, she will cook Janmastami feast. And I thought, wow, that's really a devotee. A non-devotee will think, oh no, on Monday I have to work all day and I will not even be able to eat it. But the devotee is thinking, wow, I will get the chance to serve Krishna and the devotees. But devotees don't always notice that themselves because they can be very critical about themselves. So that's why it's good that we have a Sangha. We have people around us who can say that, that Brigu, don't be so lazy, do something. Or, or uh, Sakyarati, you should understand how advanced you are. So that we have people who can kind of, we can mirror ourselves against. So it's, uh, I mean, I'm not saying anything new. You've heard these things 100,000 times, but I'm hoping maybe it will still. What about peaceful mind? Because I have seen many very sincere devotees and they struggle a lot with, some kind of trauma and depression and then we can consider oh maybe he's not so advanced and if he all the times has such a problem like uh, not having a peaceful mind so what do you think about this i don't think that's a a, a very good uh, sign of advancement peaceful mind uh, we see that there are devotees who can whose minds can be very unsteady very advanced devotees who can be all the time worried about does Krishna love me? Uh, there's one devotee called Radharani, the topmost devotee, and she her mind is not peaceful at all. Not at all peaceful. She's completely mental about whether Krishna loves her or not. Uh, and nobody can be more advanced than her. So, so I mean, having a, a, a calm mind can also be just part of the body. Like I'm I'm a Finnish person. So my DNA, my, my background is being a very kind of 
um, person. It's nothing to do with me being advanced or anything. It's just I'm boring. So I look like I'm very peaceful and, and, and calm, but it's just my body and my mind. It's nothing to do with being advanced. Everybody is like that in this country. So, so uh, we shouldn't take these kind of things too seriously. I saw there are some questions in the, in the chat as well. Uh, is there a Vedic version of the Western concept of idealism? Well, in, in Buddhism, that's uh, this Chitta Matra school, but also uh, some Hindu schools are also idealistic or at least uh, non-realistic. The Advaita or Mayavada school, of course, would be an example of that, but uh, there are also other other schools, uh, Shaiva schools, for example. So, so uh, uh, yes, there are, are parallels to, to Western uh, idealism. Then there's uh, something in Spanish here by Yavat Bihari. Maybe Kaliuga uh, Pavane, you can translate. Yes, so, so Kaliyoga Pavana is talking, but you can't hear him, Brigu? No. Okay. Uh, try to put English in the right bottom globe. Okay, I did. Now I hear you, yes. Yes, thank you. This is a very good, good question. Um, I think from the Vaishnava perspective, the, the main thing is uh, to try to change the, the, the perspective that we have. Like for example, uh, one young man went to Gorkishwardas Babaji Maharaj to get his blessings uh, for getting married. This is a typical thing that uh, a religious Hindu person will do. He will ask the blessings of a, of a saint for whatever he's doing, especially something big like getting married. So Gorky Shordas Babaji Maharaj said that, uh, of course, you will have my blessings. But the main thing is you need to understand that uh, you are marrying a goddess. You are marrying a uh, a servant of Radharani, and you, you need to think of yourselves as being her servant. This is kind of radical in a Hindu background, where there's this idea that the, the husband is the god of the wife, and the wife advances just by serving the husband, and so on. 
he kind of put this completely in the opposite direction that you as the husband you need to think of yourself as the servant of your wife and of course if he had spoken with the wife he would have said the same thing to her that you need to think that you are marrying a god that you should serve this uh, uh, husband of yours like a god so as vaishnavas of course this is what we need to learn to see ourselves as the servant jeevar sharup hoy kishnin nitodash the sharup the, the nature of the jeev is to be krishna's eternal servant and this means servant of everybody servant of everybody that's what's so beautiful about the vaishnava uh, marriage that by serving your wife by serving your husband by serving your children you're serving a vaishnava you're making advancement by serving a vaishnava that also means that when you're shouting at your wife when you are uh, being mean to your husband you're doing vaishnava parad so it has both sides to it it's very powerful Uh, so the the way to kind of uh, see your environment as a vaishnava uh, is is through this through the attitude of being servant seeing everybody around us everything around us as opportunities for service guru maharaj likes to speak like this he quite often says like this that the vaishnava should see everything as an opportunity for service but here is this woman here is this man uh, by serving him by serving her i can advance spiritually and how do you do that well of course you do it uh, by learning about all of these things by studying the shastras but also by engaging in your in your uh, sadhana uh, and and then getting kind of uh, not only knowledge but realization of all of these truths i don't know if exa- that was exactly what what uh, mataji asked about but i understood it like this anything else pranam thank you i just would like to share my gratitude for this series i really love all of the series you given so far but i'm a little bit extra grateful for this one <laughs> and uh, thank you very much thank you and again thank you everyone we were quite a bit over over time thank you everybody who joined uh, afterwards marangopal sarada maharaha bindubati murlidhar uh, nice that you all had a chance to join and there will there will be more more classes this series ends but we have so many exciting classes to look forward to in september so i hope to see all of you on on the different classes in the upcoming days and uh, happy janmashtami it's not yet here but soon so happy waiting for janmashtami arivo jai vishnu par varang sparvaraj ka charya stotra stashi shimad भक्ति वेदांता त्रिपुरारिदेवो स्वामराशले गुरुदेव की जय जय गुरु परंपरा की जय जय पंचतत्वात्मा श्री गौरहरि की जय 
जय गोड़िया वैष्णवीर्थी धाम की जय जय नरसिंह देव भगवान की जय जय भक्त प्रहलाद महाराज की जय जय चार वैष्णव संप्रदाय की जय चार वैष्णव आचार्य की जय चार धाम की जय चार वीर की जय जय पतंजलि मुनि की जय जय अनंत वैष्णव वृंद की जय जय श्री चैतन्य संघ की जय जय गौर प्रेम नंदे हरि हरि बो हरि 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 ह